a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode contains topics that include murder, suicide, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Quinn, how is your home right now? What's going on? You are like, I feel like you're in a ward and you might as well be wearing all white like a little everyone in my house keeps getting sick and it's you know I have to tell you that I try to be so good about the screen time with my kids because they're still so young they're two and they're five and I'm like trying my best to not be you know letting them sit in front of the boob tube but when they're sick no what do you do it's free reign honestly that was but don't you remember being a kid and that was the perk of it, I'd sit in front of the TV and I would just scroll through channels and I would typically, like, what was on at that time was either baby cartoons or PBS or, like, something that I was maybe a little too old for mm-hmm. um, or, like, something I was way too young for, <laughs> like the Maury's, the Jenny Jones, the Sally Jesse Raphael, like, things. A little Geraldo. A little Geraldo. Just a dash of Geraldo. I didn't really know how babies were made, but I could tell you before I knew that, you are not the father. <laughs> How <laughs> that sort of. your sex ed was you are not the father and I was like I guess it's that easy and also and then some wigs got pulled <laughs> exactly like, or like I've had feelings for you this whole time and I'm married and you're my cousin and you're like what's happening yes there were a lot of the the pronouncements of cheating or pronouncements of being in love with someone mm-hmm. or having their baby I mean you were figuring out that the relationship that you thought you were in It was not so. It was not as you saw it. No, but the case that we're going to talk about today involves one of those TV shows. And I think, to me, what's surprising about the case that we're covering today is that it didn't happen more often. Absolutely. Can I take it back and just ask you, Mm -hmm. instead of being on, you know, Hinge or whatever it is, instead of being on the apps, have you ever considered maybe just trying to get the contact information of a guy in the neighborhood you like and you could bring him on one of these shows. You could you could bring him on the show. You could reveal to him on television that you have feelings for him. Have you tried that at all? I haven't, but knowing my luck, it would be someone I thought was cute. And then it'd be like, and we're bringing out his wife. <laughs> it doesn't seem like, like could- I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. <laughs> Well, here's the truth. If you had a crush on somebody and yes. you went and you brought them on a show like that to reveal it, it feels like there's a lot of reasons that could go wrong. There's a lot of ways it could go sideways, right? But I got to tell you, if someone called me and was like, hey, someone's got a crush on you. Do you want to go on TV to find out? You bet your ass I'd be there. I'd be so curious. Listen, I think that there are so many ways it could go wrong. What yeah. I think is interesting about the case we're going to be talking about today is that it went about as wrong as it could go. Because this one ends in a murder. And what surprises me the most is that it didn't go this wrong more times. Right. It's, yeah, this case is pretty wild. And it's honestly what attracted me to it because I, I, it was, it's shocking. It's shocking. Well, why don't you take this case on one of those shows and tell it you have a crush on it? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we just tell it here? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. March 9th, 1985, Jonathan Schmitz, he walks up to Scott Amander's door and Scott lives in this mobile home and it's cute. There's some trees out front. There's a little hammock. Like it's, it's pretty cute, right? Yeah, well, I was like, you know, I, I'll i be honest, like, when I think mobile home, I did not think, like, I would see pictures and be like, I would live there. It was very cute. But it, it was, was. very I cute. Just, like, he's clearly it, made it his own. and He has a nice and, setup. Yeah, and Scott actually has a roommate at the time, this guy Gary Brady, and Gary is staying with Scott because Gary is living with HIV, and Scott wanted to offer him a place to stay which I think yeah. speaks to who Scott was, just a nice guy. And a good friend. And a really good friend. And so John knocks on the door and um, Gary answers. And, you know, John's like, hey, is Scott home? Gary's already met John, right? Like he met him yeah. once before a few nights ago. So he knows who this guy is. And he's like, oh, Scott's down by the bathroom. And Scott's back there flossing. And he's like, yeah, come on back. Come talk to me back here while I floss. So you can tell um, – they clearly he's, know each other. Comf- That's pretty Scott's comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think a lot of people want to talk to me while I'm flossing, and I wouldn't make most people. Famously to pretty be woman, fair. she hides flossing from Edward in the in the movie. Just in case you want to know, that is an intimate thing. Okay, it's so. it's not a spectacle sport. Um, but the point being, it feels intimate in a sense that like nothing feels out of the ordinary, especially to Gary. To him, John walks in, John has a look that really reveals nothing. And we will learn more about John, but I will say that something about him is that he's very good at masking his emotions. He doesn't wear them on his sleeve. So it's hard to know what's going on with him necessarily at any time. But right now, Gary's not getting a vibe of anything being off. Yeah, so John walks in. He asks Scott if he left this note on his doorstep. And to be clear, it wasn't just a note. It was a note along with caution tape and blinking lights. It it, it feels like it was a scene, like a setup. And from what I understand, it was intended as a joke, but for some reason, John did not laugh at this. Um, And Scott says, yeah, that was me. I did leave you that note and that like caution tape and light setup. Once he says that he's the one responsible for leaving the note, I think the energy shifts a little bit. I don't know if anyone feels it but John, but John turns to leave and says he forgot to shut off the car, and he goes outside the mobile home. And Gary remembers he was sitting on the couch reading, and he's listening because the car's pretty loud and the motor was on. John doesn't turn off the car. Yeah. But he does walk to the car, go to the car, come back to the mobile home and knock on the door. So Gary's clocking this and he's like, guy didn't turn off the motor. What's going on? But this time Scott answers the door. And as he opens the door, suddenly Scott's demeanor changes completely. He yells, Mm -hmm. Gary, help. He's got a gun. He's gonna shoot. This seems to happen very, very quickly. And from what I can assume, 
is that Gary's just let this guy in. He's left. He said he was turning off this car. He didn't. I don't even know if he had time to process that. It feels like he's going, is this a joke? Like, what could possibly be happening? He's he's having a hard time understanding the reality of the situation. Well, there was no build. No. <laughs> it's and he it's sees, black to white. It's, it's exactly. I would know, say it's white to black. Zero to 100. Right. Scott grabs the wicker chair and is holding it in front of him, clearly wanting to put any sort of object between his body and John. A wicker chair is not going to save you. So I wonder if that's making it even harder for Gary to process what's going on. But he looks outside the window and sees that this is what's going on. John, having gone to the car and come back, is now carrying a shotgun and he's using it to push the door open. And this must be terrifying, but in the meantime, while he's trying to register the threat, he makes eye contact with John. That's so scary. And he recalls this moment and says there was just nothing there. It's like there's this vacantness happening. There's not a strong emotion even, just emptiness, which that must have been just terrifying. Again, Again, I can't reiterate how quickly this scene is transpiring right yes, I, I mean because no one suddenly can make sense of anything there's a shotgun blast right and john has shot through the front door through the wicker chair and into scott amador's chest scott reaches to grab his chest and john shoots him again and he collapses to the ground And Gary is our eyewitness throughout this entire scene. So Mm -hmm. according to Gary, he sees his friend collapse. And what he recalls is he sees smoke coming out of this grapefruit-sized hole of his friend. And so he rushes to his friend. He checks for a pulse. There's none. He grabs the phone. He calls 911. And of course, while this is all happening, John's left the car running. He's in the car and he's booked it out of there. Uh, this this it takes us a minute to say but yeah you're right this must have been just seconds almost it's yeah. just it, it unfolds so quickly and really gary had to watch this person who who took, took him care in. of him yes and now he's lying on the ground with a hole in his body and he can't shake this image he won't be able to for no. years i mean i think he's going to bed at night he's picturing this he must be saying to himself was there a sign I missed? Was there a point that I could have interceded? But we just told you this story. Certainly there was not, but you must just play it again and again and again. His 32-year-old friend getting shot like that in front of him with no sign prior that anything like that would take place that day. And so the question on everyone's mind is, why? Why? Why did John mm-hmm. come up to Scott's home and shoot him? It's like, it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And what does this note have to do with it? Yeah. Well, in order to understand all that, we're going to have to go back in time and talk about what happened a few days ago when Scott and John appeared on television together. But before, I do want to say before we talk about their TV appearance, I do want to talk about their relationship because these guys, they knew each other. This wasn't a stranger. This wasn't a random attack. This is, these are two men that knew each other. So let's start with Donna Riley. Donna Riley lives in an apartment complex and John lives in this same apartment complex. One of Donna Riley's friends is Scott. So that's how they're going to first meet. Basically, Donna's car was broken and John can 
fix things like that. So he's over underneath the car, shirt off, doing the fix-it thing, and Scott sees him and is like, whoa, Donna, your friend is pretty cute. He's into it. He likes what he sees. John's a cute guy. He's a handsome guy. In fact, one of the articles I read described him as having a Kennedy-esque jaw. Oh, uh, so like a very square. I guess I see it now that you say it. Yeah, he's 24 years old. He's handsome. And he meets Scott. And I want to be very clear. John and Scott meet. Scott thinks, wowza, this guy's a hottie. And Scott is gay. He's not hiding that fact from anyone. And John sees that. And he doesn't treat him any differently. Right? Outwardly, he seems very accepting of that fact at a time when it's not widely accepted. I mean, it's 1995. There's... There's a lot of hatred towards the gay community at this time. And I think, obviously, we are not in a perfect place, but we are far better than we were in 1995. This was a time when DOMA was the next year, right? Yeah. They were going to define marriage as being between a man and a woman the next year. I mean, sodomy laws are still in place. I mean, Ellen DeGeneres hasn't even come out yet. Ellen, can you imagine Ellen wasn't out ever? I think some people listening to this will be like, Ellen wasn't out when? Well, remember when she came out? I mean, but even when she came out at the time, I mean, the consequences of her career, she had to go through that very publicly. Yeah. So I think what's important to note is that Scott is not hiding his sexuality and John is not acting homophobic or unaccepting in any way. And I think at this time, Scott thinks he's hot. Scott, I think, is hopeful. Hey, maybe this guy could be interested in me, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think by all outward appearances, John is straight, but... Because of the climate, mm-hmm. you never know because right. there were – when you were gay and you were trying to date, I'm sure that was something you came up against was a lot of people aren't going to come out and say that they are gay. Yeah. What I will say though is this isn't like a booming metropolis. This is in Lake Orion, Michigan, which is like you know, 50, 60 Itty miles bitty. away from Detroit. So it's not like you – know, we're not in New York City or San Francisco here, right? Yeah, but John doesn't show any interest in Scott. I ju- I, to be clear, you know, Scott yeah. is making, uh, I don't even think he's making assumptions. I think he just has a really uh, uh, hope and a prayer. Like, he likes this guy. The interactions between them have been really nice. They've been platonic, but they've been, yeah, really nice. Well, I'm, you know, I have to say in this moment, I think as women, I've been very nice to people I'm not attracted to, and it's given them the wrong idea that I am attracted to them, so I could understand that confusion. Yeah, for those who don't know, you do have to walk around and be mean to anybody you don't want to sleep with. That's (laughs) a really important way to live your life. We suggest you start doing it now. (laughs) So Donna, right, is this like fulcrum, if I'm going to use some cool science words, she's the glue that keeps them together, right? She invites Scott over for dinner. Sometimes she extends the invite to John. It's like they got mutual friends. They're expanding the friend circle. Right. I don't know if they'd call themselves friends, but they do have a a friend in common. So Mm -hmm. they are friend adjacent. I would say friendly. At the very least. Yeah. Friendly. I would go go with We would go as far to say they were friendly. But Scott, I think Scott wants a little more. So Scott is out and about one night, and he's hanging out at a local bar, and there he sees a flyer. It's a flyer from the Jenny Jones show, and it's asking for anyone, anyone at all, with a secret crush on someone of the same sex that they should call in. 
I mean, this is very cinematic to me. I feel like I just like can see him like I see it coming down clocking, like a feather. He's clocking John and he's like running fantasies of him through his mind. And then he walks up to this like flyer and he's like, huh? huh. Like it's like it <gasps> is it's divine intervention. It's, this is like a Deus Machina moment. Well, and it's not just that. Scott likes the show. Like he watches Jenny. He's into yeah. the Jenny Jones show. So I feel like Scott was somebody that he liked movie stars and TV and this kind of thing. So the the idea that the two things he likes right now, TV shows and John. Some might say he loves the letter J. <laughs> I was Maybe six so. at the time. I was, I was learning the alphabet. <laughs> I think that this is a perfect opportunity for him for a lot of reasons. He can go on this show. He can admit his crush in a fun way. Mm-hmm. in a kind of a silly, whimsical way to this person. Right. But more than that, even if it doesn't go great, he's going to get to be on TV on this show yeah. that he loves. Yeah. It, and do like a trip. I mean, everything about this is is screaming fun times. So he calls Jenny and he's like, Jenny, I'm sure I he do doesn't have a crush. Jenny. Thank you for asking. Yeah, she picks up. <laughs> I'm sure Jenny, Jenny, I'm glad it's you. Pick up. And he tells about this story, and I, I don't know if they um, how many calls they got on this one, but when Scott calls, the producers jump at the opportunity. So the Jenny Jones producers now give John a call to say, hey, we're doing a show. It's on secret crushes. He knows that somebody has a secret crush on him that is going to reveal it, but they are clear that they do not tell him if it's a man or woman. I think that because John presents as heterosexual, says he's heterosexual, he doesn't dwell on that too much at the time because he thinks surely it will be a woman. And he does say yes and decides to appear on this show. Yeah, well, it's more than he's hopeful that it's a woman. He's hopeful that it's his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Who they broke up and it devastated him. Devastated him. This is a woman he loved. And so he was hoping that she had called in the Jenny Jones show and was going to use it as a way to reunite with him. So he's getting his hopes up in that area, but there he does have an inkling, right? It's that it's little blinking suspicion. He it's that like under thing. the surface yeah. like yeah. he's like mm, could it could it maybe be Scott? Who could it be? And so according to Newsweek, what he does is he asks Scott point blank. He says, hey, listen, um, well, he's out with Donna and Scott and he goes, hey, I'm actually going on the Jenny Jones show and there's this secret crush situation scenario type thing. Do you two know anything about this? No, 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 no. We don't know anything about it. Donna doesn't know anything about it. Scott doesn't know anything about it. You know, and I'm sure that they've also potentially been told by told the producers it's a secret crush show it. yeah. it's a secret crush you don't show ruin, not just you a don't crush ruin show it. this is your opportunity on no. the Jenny Jones show you don't want to ruin it you don't want to blow it no and we need drama so let's keep it secret we need surprise we need drama so when John asks and they say no he's like okay it probably you know what okay. it probably is my ex and that feels really exciting yeah and i mean we obviously know who it is so it's not spoiling but John gets really excited. He he spends $600 on a new outfit for TV, which to be clear, this is in the 90s, so I imagine that's like $20,000. Um, <laughs> easily. I mean, have easily. you ever spent $600 on an outfit? My no. my wedding jumpsuit gonna be was on, not $600. He's going to be on TV, Quinn. And, and more so than that, 
He even starts fantasizing that it's his ex-girlfriend and he dreams of proposing to her on the Jenny Jones show. So she'll say, I have a secret crush on you. And then and he'll he be says, like, Will you they marry thought they me? were going to get drama. They I'm are. I'm giving them drama. So I'm going to get on one knee. And again, it's like you see him spiraling this fantasy where he doesn't have a lot of information that is accurate. Right. John is, he's dressed to impress and he shows up to the Jenny Jones show and, you know, you're a celebrity already. They take you to a green room. Sounds pretty fancy. And he starts to get anxious again in the green room. And he asks the producers, he's like, guys, uh, is it a man? I just, is it, is it a man though? And the producers who are trained to deal with these kinds of questions and be your friend, but also be not your friend, say, also be a producer, says to him, man, woman, dog, who knows? Relax. And I don't know if that relaxes him. They see that he's still pretty tense and they give him a beer. Meanwhile, they've sequestered Scott and Donna in their own dressing room. And Scott's pretty nervous, but he's also really excited. I mean, he has all of the information on his side. He also has Donna, who's with him. So he knows exactly what's going to happen. Whereas John, he's in the dark. He has no clue. Um, But Scott is a little tentatively nervous about John's reaction. Because again... There's a studio audience and it's TV. So there's so many layers at play here to make every participant feel a little on edge. So the show starts and you, if you want to watch it, it's available because this show ended up being evidence, an exhibit in trial. So yeah, you can it watch it never on aired TV's on TV. website. But Jenny Jones is during the show doing, doing the thing she does. She's inviting people out one by one, and she's asking them questions about their secret crush. You know, it's sort of like the buildup is like, tell me when you met them. How much do you like them? Why do you like them? Um, do, do you think they know? All that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, whoever the crush is, the person they're crushing on, is backstage with uh, like noise-canceling headphones. They can't hear anything, so it will still be a surprise. And the audience now gets to be part of the reveal because they get to find out all these things about the person that they're about to see walk onto the stage. So they're cheering, you know, they're, ooh, and, and, and trying to, you know, they're getting excited, too, about this crush reveal. And Scott and Donna are sitting on stage next to each other. But um, the empty seat just to the other side of Scott is, is vacant, and that's the seat that they're saving for John. And it's very, I got to say, I was watching, they put these chairs very close together. Like, close. you know when you're at a bar with your friend and they do that and the chairs are so close together that you kind of have to keep your face forward to talk to your friend because if you turned, <laughs> you're weirdly almost kissing your friend. and It's like gross. That is that is kind of how they place these chairs. Yeah, to me, want, it was uncomfortably close. Yeah, they want you as close physically as possible because, again, they want those. I don't like it. They want all three in the camera shot. So, but at this point, Jenny is plying Scott with questions, and she's gotten word from her producers who had done a pre-show interview on Scott that he has a little fantasy about what he wants to do with John. So Scott's a little coy, and Jenny Jones keeps asking him about his fantasy. So Scott has this hammock, like we mentioned, outside of his mobile home, right? That cute little scene we were setting earlier. And 
He thought, you know, maybe he could tie John up to the hammock and maybe involve some whipped cream and champagne, dot, dot, dot. It's not any more explicit than that. But the audience is like, is like foaming at the mouth, so happy to hear this like sexy, sexy detail. And I want to be clear, Scott, at first he's a little shy, but he's also playful. Like I think to describe Scott, I think Scott did like being the center of attention. I think TV thrilled him. Um, His brother would later say that, you know, he wanted to be on TV. You know, that was something that, so I think he, so I think he's hearing this crowd reaction and he's playing with it. He's like a natural born entertainer in a lot of ways. Yes. I even thought in just in like watching it, I wondered it's the, it felt like to me, the producers have these set questions. I'm sure they ask everyone. But they're passing notes. (laughs) And when they're saying, when they say to you backstage to prep you for Jenny, is there a fantasy that you have? Uh, It I think the dynamic might be the feeling of, I really want to give you an answer if you're Scott. So it's that feeling of, you want me to have a fantasy about this person. Let me really quick think of, no offense to Scott, the most boring, obvious thing I could say, which is like, yes, I do have a a fantasy. I would tie them up and I would use whipped cream. It's like, that's so um, unrealistic to me, just in a way of, of... being lactose intolerant. No, no. In a way of being like, I don't know that anyone actually fantasizes about that. It sounds like a story. Right. The real fantasy, more than the hammock and tying it up in the whipped cream and champagne, the real fantasy is that if Scott reveals his crush on John and John feels safe enough to say, hey, I do have a crush on you too. Let's be together. While Scott is telling his fantasy to the whole studio audience, John is backstage. He's wearing those noise-canceling headphones, and so he can't hear or see anything. Um, And he's getting amped up, excited about who he's going to meet. Remember, he thinks it's going to be his ex-girlfriend who he's planning on proposing to. So once Jenny Jones is done questioning Scott and Donna, She's like, let's bring him out. So John comes on stage to meet his secret admirer. And don't you just think when he walks oh. out and sees Scott and Donna oh, sitting there that his heart hits the floor? Yeah, but that his smile stays wide. Like that oh, feeling yes, of it's discomfort. Very, he's, you're right. He's, it's plastered to his face, this yeah. embarrassed, like, like grin and Barrett smile. Totally. And what I wish he had done in this moment, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, is like walk out, be at the top of those, you know, stairs or the end of the stage, see that it's them and just turn around. I think that people feel so much pressure in this situation to then sit down and bear whatever's going to happen. But the truth is uh, he should have just left because he knows what's about to happen now and he doesn't like it. Well, he doesn't want it to. To be he, clear, he sees Donna there, too. The person who has a crush on him could very well be Donna in this moment. Right. I, I don't I know if he thinks that way. It's like, well, you don't know. What I he mean, does know for sure is that ex-girlfriend is not sitting in the yeah, chair. She's not and, there. and he better have kept the receipt 
for that $600 outfit he's well, you wearing. you know he's because- sweating in it because he's nervous. There's no question to me. You're about to go Ugh. on TV. You're sweating in that outfit. So he walks over. He has to hug them both. He has to go hug yeah. them. And then he has to sit in the two, 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 two close chair next to Scott. It's yeah. This and is so awkward. Hug, I feel awkward. The hug between him and Scott is very uncomfortable. Like, it's very quick. Yeah. And so he sits down and Jenny Jones is right there. The audience is looking at him with big smiles yeah. on their faces waiting to see what his reaction is going to be. And it happens pretty quickly because I feel like if if I was hosting the show, which I'm not, nor have I been asked, but I I would sort of draw it out, <laughs> really? right? Yeah. Wouldn't you draw it out? It feels well, so quick that he hugs him, she sits down, and he's and, she, and Jenny Jones goes, "So, do you think it's Donna or Scott that I have a crush on you?" And she doesn't even wait for him to answer, and she's like, "It's actually Scott." It's Scott. And as soon as he hears it, he looks at Scott and Donna still with that smile, and he's like, "You lied to me." But well, he's he like, says it <laughs> laughing. He's like, "You lied you to guys, me, you liars." Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah, it's it feels like he is doing everything he can to keep it cool and to cover up any emotions that are happening because there's a studio audience, there's the host, there's the cameras in his face. There's a lot of pressure to keep your cool. So he, he's trying to do his best. He's, you know, he's laughing it off. Jenny Jones, we got to get down to business. She's got work to do. So she asks John if he is single, to which he immediately responds, yes, but quickly says, I'm 100% straight. He says he's very flattered by Scott's crush, but it is absolutely not mutual. He does not feel the same way, and he is not gay. And we could have ended it there. We could have ended it there, but no. Because they have this clip of Scott talking about his fantasy, and they decide to play that for John and the audience. So not only has the audience heard the fantasy, now they get to watch John see this fantasy. He gets to watch Scott talk about the fantasy about him, which is just, again, it's to elicit a reaction. It's to make everyone uncomfortable. It's very very cringy. And John hears this, and again, he has a smile plastered on his face. It's clear that he's uncomfortable. I mean, of course. Um, It's awkward, and this fantasy plays, and you see him covering his face and again, he's smile, but he does take it in stride. He's polite. He's friendly. He doesn't appear to be angry, just uncomfortable. And I think that even after the show's over, he he keeps up the the sort of facade, right? Because they're going to all fly on the same flight. The producers are all checking with him. Well, the producers ask him, they go, are you okay flying home on the same flight? To which he replies, yeah. I am. Yeah, he's like, sure, sure. Yeah, I, he keeps his cool, and they're going to, you know, fly on the same plane. He's still uncomfortable, but he's still smiling the whole way. And from where Jenny Jones is sitting, they're like, this was a great show. We nailed it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So John boards the same plane as Scott and Donna, though he is not, his seat is not awkwardly close to Scott. He's not, you know, picture. It doesn't mirror the seat setup. It would be a repeat of the studio. (laughs) Yes. close seats. (laughs) Yes. Thank goodness he has some space. I think he just needs to digest what's happening. And he actually ends up sitting next to this woman, Patricia Selinsky. And this is according to her own testimony in trial. Because of what ends up happening, she must just replay this flight in her mind all the time. And she says that John was kind of jittery and excitable. And that when Donna and Scott got on the plane, he stood up and just waved to them You know, he's got that plastered on fake smile we've all come to know. Then he sits down with Patricia and he starts chatting with her. And he's kind of apologizing, being like, oh, sorry, you know, I've had a few drinks at the airport with my friends and I'm just, I'm having a really bad day. Yeah. And I think Patricia at this point just wants to read her book, which listen, Patricia, I get it. Frankly, I get it. Um, And I think it feels like John is talking at her. He's so desperate to talk to someone about his day. And I think yeah. at that point, she just relents and this story will be a fun story to tell later. Little does she know she's about to go to court. The poor thing. She kept the book open for a while. Yes. Like that you hint know of like, I'd like to get back you know to this. And then you did. can picture the moment that she's sort of like, okay, and dog ears it and folds it's it. Because it's like, this guy is going to talk the whole you flight. Know her okay. You know, mm-hmm. he's turned to the to the side. But it seems like he just really needs to process this out loud. And he has been drinking. So let's add that to this list. And it it feels to me like it's going to be a lot of like circuitous arguments. Circular. Right? It's going to – we've all talked yeah. to someone who's been overserved and you're in plane, you're in flight, you're feeling drunker than you actually are. Um, and but so this is the first time we sort everything. of see – yeah, we see what's behind – the fake yeah. smile. This is the first time that we know of that he's going right. to say to somebody, this was humiliating. This was horrible. And he, part of, I think, what he's spinning about in front of her is he's realizing this was not just something that was embarrassing that happened in a room with this audience, which that was already embarrassing to him. This is something that was filmed and it has yet to air. So I can anticipate that there will be a bunch of people in my life that see this on television and I will have to relive this embarrassment and it will be magnified. And most especially, he has family members he's really concerned are going to see it and think that he's gay. He's worried his grandparents are going to think he's gay. Yeah. And he keeps coming back to that part, right? Mm -hmm. He keeps coming back to that fear that he doesn't want people to think that he's gay or he participated in this in any way or he somehow let this happen to him. Um, But he also, in the same breath, is saying that he doesn't have any issue with gay people. He is spiraling. The plane lands, and he offers to drive Donna back to their shared apartment complex and Scott come along with them. So the three of them drive in John's car, and they actually stop at Brewski's, which is a local bar 
where they grab more drinks. And the three of them are sitting in a booth. And just because we think it's important, we want to tell you that John sits next to Donna. Scott is on a side by himself, you know, in case it wasn't clear that he's like, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I'm going to sit next to Donna. And he even at one point nuzzles into Donna's shoulder in a way that was noted later in trial, which to me screams, look, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight, I'm straight. Right. But this is so tricky because, again, he is on the plane doing the fake smile and then aggressively telling this stranger how angry he is, how humiliated he is, and how worried he is. And then he immediately is going out with yeah, but, Scott. But they're still his friends. Like, he's still friends with Donna. I mean... I don't know. To me, it didn't feel like he was aggressively sharing this story to Patricia. To me, what it felt like is he was riddled with anxiety. And both things can be true. You can be riddled with anxiety and you can still want to hang out with your friends who's wronged you in some way. And he doesn't have, at this point too, he doesn't really have anyone in his life who knows what's going on besides this stranger, Patricia. And the only people that he's gone through this experience with are Scott and Donna. I agree with you, and I just still, I keep going in my own head of, like, what would I do, not in this exact circumstance, but if I felt like you a mean you've never been asked friendly... to go on the Jenny Jones show? Weird. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I would want to go get a drink, but not with them, not with, not with my friends who I felt lied to me or embarrassed me, not with somebody that I couldn't openly complain to. Um, I'm just saying that it, it's, it's neither here nor there, maybe, but I am surprised that this is what ends up happening after they land. But whatever happens at the bar, according to Patricia's testimony, John does have several more cocktails, and he was already pretty drunk to begin with, so he does end up crashing his car into a traffic barrier. And to be clear, nobody is hurt, but I think that, you know, everything that's happened, and now he's got to go fix the car. It's not a great day. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad day, especially because, again, he thought he was going to propose to his ex-girlfriend, who he's still in love with. And this is where the day is ending. It's not a good look. So he is pulling up to his apartment complex that both Mm -hmm. him and Donna live in and Scott is there. And Donna asks if he wants to come and have a nightcap at her place with the two of them. So John goes, has a drink. He leaves, um, goes to his own apartment. So John was feeling a lot of anxiety and humiliation on the airplane at the bar afterwards, but those feelings don't go away with time. In fact, I think they get magnified and he is spiraling and he doesn't know what to do to cope with these feelings. He feels um, like there is nothing he can do. You know, I think that where's the agency he feels. And so he's just drinking. Yeah, which, my God the worst thing you could do and the worst he's drunk he's sobbing he decides to call his dad alan schmitz and he tells him what happened on the show i mean keep in mind he told his friends and family he was going on the jenny jones show that someone had a crush on them so he now has to tell everybody what actually happened and relive this relive it and according to his dad's testimony john is crying on the phone telling his dad how he is afraid that he will be perceived as gay and I think we've all had those conversations with with loved ones, with whether it's friends or family, where you're in a bad mood and someone's wronged you and you're communicating with them. And instead of them going, oh, that sucks, they go, yeah, and this, and this. And it's almost like 
you're getting bolstered. It only eggs on your feelings. Yeah. It and doesn't we, make you feel like you yeah. purged your feelings and you feel better. It makes you feel it like you worse. need to it, it feels heightened, I think. And John is very fragile, not only in this state, but he has a long history of mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, he's had depression. He's he's attempted suicide. And I at that time he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, so he is in a place where he mentally is prone to extreme shifts. And his dad obviously knows that. So when his dad gets this call where he's drunk and he's sobbing, mm-hmm. I think he sees red too, right? He's afraid for his son because he's had a couple of close calls. He's He remembers his son trying to commit suicide, right? And he knows that John's depression has plagued him for a lot of his life. And he sees this moment as it could, it, it could, could happen again. It could, yeah, it could absolutely happen again. What happened happen last again. time? John felt, you know, so sad, so hopeless, so uh, didn't know what to do. It was when his was, girlfriend he went broke and, up with him. Well, he went and he bought a shotgun, and he was going to kill himself with it. Now that story ends that he went and returned it, and nothing happened. But now he's back in this very precarious emotional state, and his dad is pretty terrified. Yeah. And add alcohol to that. I mean, his dad actually goes to visit John's apartment to physically check on him. And I think any parent can understand and identify with that. Um, And he actually tries to console him. And he even says that he'd be okay if John was gay. He takes this moment to say, hey, if you are, it's okay. It's all going to be okay. So He's trying to console John, tell him that he's going to accept him, whoever he is, whatever his identity may be. Um, And he's trying to just pull his son away from the metaphorical edge. And he even enlists John's family, John's sister, to go and check on him in person. Um, They're sort of rallying the troops to say, hey, John needs a lot of support right now. He's not doing okay. So we've been tracking John post Jenny Jones. It's so wild, but Scott is on the opposite way. He's on cloud nine. He's on cloud nine. He's like, I think that went pretty well. And he's telling Donna, I'm going to go get, I'm I'm, I'm buying a ceiling fan. I think I'm going to ask, I think I'm going to ask John to come with me and we can install it together. He is in his head. Scott thinks this went great. And he's even kind of continuing a fantasy where he's pretending that it went even better than it did and telling friends that they hooked up. Well, he's saying it. We don't know if he's saying they necessarily hooked up. He's saying we spent the night together. Like, it went so well. We ended up hanging out the whole night. Yeah, I think it's he... misleading. He wants it to feel like it went well. And maybe, he, maybe there's some embarrassment there for him, too, if there's a feeling, like anybody of just rejection if you tell someone that you like them and they don't feel the same. Right. So he's keeping the door wide open. And he, you know, to be fair, they did go get drinks after the show. A lot they did of, one land. might say too many and drinks. Too many, many drinks. Many, many, many drinks. But that did happen. And he is sort of saying it, you're right, in this did we or didn't we way. And Scott takes it a step further, which he calls the producer at Jenny Jones' show. Again, he is riding high. He's revealed his crush. He was on TV. They all hung out. Everything was hunky-dory. 
who is Hunky Dory? Great idea. Um, so <laughs> anyway, so um, he ends up calling the producers of Jenny Jones and he goes, hey, everyone, it went so well. We actually spent the night together after the show. Now, to be clear, there is no proof of that. It's a it's a bit of a misrepresentation of what happened. But when the producers in Chicago hear this, they're super stoked. In fact, they yell from the phone, hey, I think we got a love connection over here. And then they tell Scott, hey, if this all goes well, maybe there's a possibility for a follow-up show in your future. And you know Scott loves that. Like to get Scott to go back on Jenny, that. to become a regular. Oh, yeah, to be on TV again would be incredible. Um the real irony, though, is that this follow-up show would not happen. In fact, the next time he'd be on TV, it would be court TV. Well, three days after the taping of the Jenny Jones show, John shows up at home to receive that infamous note that we started this story with, the note that has crime scene tape crisscrossed over the door. you got a flashing amber traffic light. It's a pretty cute setup. I'm not going to lie. I love a gimmick. Okay, yes. I do like the gimmick. Yes. I want to just do. say in this moment, because we're straddling two realities, Scott is going, what a cute little yes. moment. And John walks in and sees a very public display of whether of it's the friendship or affection of running the thing that from. he is most fearful of in this moment. Yes. It's so crazy because they, they are. You just wish they would have called each other and had a more normal conversation about this mm-hmm. and explained both of them in a little bit clearer terms where they were coming from, because no one understands where the other person is right now, and they're they are they're on these totally and different even wavelengths. The note is, I mean, it's- oh yes, the note. Okay, so the note says, John, if you want it quote off, you'll have to ask me. P.S. It takes a special tool. Guess who? Okay, you said so it's, that it's, very sexily, though. You did see that. It's very a very sexy note. You don't think that he's writing it and he's saying it the way I just said it? Yeah. How do you think he's saying it? No. I, hey, John, if you want it off, you'll have to ask me. P.S. Oh, it no takes a special way he's tool. I'm like kidding. That. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was a very casual note. Really we, we casual. Don't know it he was, was actually offering to help his headlight that he broke when he drove them all home. I I think that Scott really actually thinks there's still a chance. And so he is keeping up the flirty vibe. He's riding high from Jenny Jones. And he's like, maybe, because you know, and that might be because he's experienced such uh, homophobia where people have been downright cruel or violent toward him. I'm just, I'm guessing that for somebody to having after the show still waved hi to him on the plane and gone and gotten a drink at the same establishment is like, wow, that didn't go that badly. Maybe there is something there based on the fact that everyone else has, that maybe he's, you know, been rejected by has been much crueler, which is only ironic because the ultimate cruelty has not yet taken place. Right. And and John, like I said, enters this scene. And someone had said this um, at one point about this about this scene of the light, the like little traffic cone amber light yeah. flashing and caution tape. And it at this point, the episode had not aired, right? John had not seen anything mm-hmm. that he has been filmed in. He has no real concept of what's happening. But just this public display in front of his door was enough to to trigger him based on his precarious state. 
And so he sees this note and I, you know, I will never, we will never know exactly what he's feeling, but from what I can surmise, he sees red. He sees the public shame. He sees the fear. He sees um, the possibility that people might not understand who he is. So John immediately gets in his car. He goes to the bank. He takes out $340. He then goes to a gun store and he purchases a shotgun with cash because that's Mm -hmm. something you can do. You can go to a store understanding his history of mental health. And and last time buying a gun and almost killing himself. But here we are. He can still buy a gun. He calmly signs all of the paperwork and the person at the cash register says nothing felt wrong at all. In fact, he even told the person at the gun counter that he's just going to go hunting. And then go to another store and buy shotgun slugs and hunting loads. And from there, he drives home to put together this gun. He puts it in his car. He drives over to Scott's mobile home. And he we all know what happens next. on the door. We know the story. We know that he goes to that. We know that he goes to Scott's residence and he kills him. Gary is standing over Scott's body calling 911 and John has left the premises in his car and John turns himself in. He goes to a payphone, he dials 911 and with the operator he says, I think I just shot a man. I just shot this guy. I just walked in and fucking shot him. When the operator asks why, he says, because he played a very fucking bad thing on me. He took me on Jenny Jones. He picked on me on national TV. John is charged with first degree murder. And the prosecutor is saying, look, it's very, very clear this was premeditated. Uh, Despite everything that we just heard that John said in this 911 call, though, where he's saying, I just did this. I killed this guy. Here's why I did it. And I just did it. He pleads not guilty. And this this is, I think, the most important historical part of this story because his lawyer attempts to use what is colloquially known as the gay panic defense. Yeah. Will you explain? Will you kind of unpack what gay panic defense is? Of course. The gay panic defense is the argument that when a heterosexual experiences unwanted same-sex advances, that that somehow justifies a violent reaction, which is akin to self-defense, right? So it's like a heterosexual- It's a a double down on homophobia. (laughs) It is- It is homophobic to the nth degree because it's saying for some reason that someone hitting on you justifies- Self-defense, which, by the way, just as a side note, as any woman who is listening to this can confirm, if a man hits on you, you cannot kill them. Although you might want to, you cannot do so. And and let me also, let me add to that just by saying that if women, if women killed men for making them uncomfortable, there wouldn't be any men left. It would be... (laughs) Like the world would end. Right. It is It is saying that the threat of homosexuality is enough to justify killing someone. It is homophobia sanctioned murder, right? Like it is, it is, yeah. it's, it's, 
And would also just like there again, there are so many holes in this argument. One, obviously the homophobia is rampant, but also I think it totally takes out of consideration the fact that Scott was at his home and John arrived there with a gun to shoot him. That is not self-defense. No, and premeditated. He didn't uh, reach over and strangle him on the Jenny Jones show when he said, he a gun I like for you. This. He, he, there were days when he hung out with him. Days went by. He went and bought a gun. He went and bought ammo. He went and drove to the house. He talked to him. Then he went back to the car. I mean, the number of times to cancel this plan were through the roof, right? I mean, totally. I think what's, I do want to also highlight about the gay panic defense is this is the first time it was documented as a defense to be used. And let's talk more about that defense. That yeah. defense is predicated on the idea that contact with a gay man is thought of as so horrible yeah. that of course, of course it would engender panic. The panic makes sense. So you have to start off with that homophobia to build that, right? And this defense, of course, has weakened over the years when we've, you know, it's become more more acceptable to be gay. Yes. The less that defense has ground to stand on. Yeah. And And what's even worse is, again, the person who was murdered, the victim in this, which is Scott Amador, he is now put on trial Because he is a confident gay man because he, quote, was asking to be murdered because he is existing as exactly who he is. You can characterize the situation as anything you want in in talking about why this happened. But what we need to look at are the facts. And the facts are that John called 911 and said, I've killed this person. Yeah. You've got Gary witnessing the murder. You've got the gun shop. You've got... I'm not even talking about fingerprints or forensic evidence. Quinn, it gets crazier. They try to say, hey, actually, it was Mm self-defense because he grabbed that chair, that wicker chair. Wicker chair versus shotgun? At this point, his lawyer is grasping at straws, just trying to get him off. He should be grasping at wicker chairs (laughs) because it's not holding up. But I think what's interesting, though, what it is doing, though, Quinn, is it is garnering sympathy to this jury. And I think what's very important to note and something that I didn't realize until I researched this case, which is you can have someone um, charged with first-degree murder – But what you could also do is you could say, hey, we'd like the charges of first-degree murder, but we're also going to put lesser charges on there. So maybe it's not first-degree murder. Maybe it's second-degree murder. Maybe it's just possession of a deadly weapon, right? So they've added all of these lesser charges, which gives Mm -hmm. the jury something to negotiate in the room. They're offering sort of an escape hatch. A compromise. Exactly. They're They're saying, don't you feel bad for John? Yeah. Don't you feel like he was really humiliated? Look what John went through. Poor John. Well, and if you feel like poor John, you can also know that John definitely blew a hole in someone with a shotgun, and but we're going to give you all these varying degrees. But this is what the trial did. They did this successfully, this gay panic. It yeah. worked. I know? mean, it worked a little bit. I mean, I would say it worked, but I mean, don't worry. John still is convicted because in 1996, he's convicted of second degree murder, um, which is just goes to show you second degree that the jury 
did have compassion and sympathy for him. Um, and he ended up appealing that conviction, or his team right, appealed that conviction. Right, he gets a whole conviction. second trial. So he gets a completely second trial. And you know what? It ends the exact same way as the first verdict. He is sentenced to 25 to 50 years with the possibility of parole. This is a very, very light sentence for what we know to have happened that day. Because I will just say, killing someone is not a normal reaction to embarrassment. And if you come across someone who murders somebody because they're embarrassed, you should be upset. You should be horrified. You should not, your instinct should not be, Get a they gun. seem pretty good all around. And I don't know, just to just throwing it out there, maybe, just maybe, if people have mental health issues, maybe don't make it as simple as can be for them to get a freaking gun. But our story doesn't end there because I think the question that I have is, where does Jenny Jones come into play in this? Like, right? What, what, yeah. Where is the responsibility on that end? Um, because some people, namely... Scott's family and even John's family, they don't think that John is the only person responsible for this. They believe that Jenny Jones, the show, is at fault and bears some responsibility for this crime. Um, So the family sues the Jenny Jones show for negligence. Right. And and what wasn't going to be aired will now be aired, right? We end up seeing this segment of the Jenny Jones show. And their part on the show is so short, the part that they were on the show, but... It's like five they minutes really, of an hour show. Right. But I think what they're looking to show uh, is Jenny Jones' culpability here and what are the yeah. questions that she's asking and could she tell how uncomfortable her guest was and did she keep poking the bear, so to speak? It's really interesting, too, because in the previous trial, it was very clear, you know, Scott's family versus John, right? And in this case, in this trial, what I find really fascinating is it seems like both John's family and Scott's family agree. They're like united. They're united in this way, saying that we think that everyone is. In fact, Scott's family has said publicly, you know, everyone's a victim here of this shock television. And so... I just find that fascinating that this family has come together to sue this huge corporation. Um, and they're saying that, you know, that negligence has led to this murder. Now, what's interesting is they have producers, they have everyone that was working on the episode mm-hmm. who had contact with both parties, John and Scott. They even have Donna, they have Gary on the stand, they have everyone. But what yeah. becomes like the big commercial sensational moment is Jenny Jones herself is called to the stand. What ends up happening is that the jury rules in the family's favor and they're awarded $29 million in damages. Yeah, but that's not the end of that because Warner Brothers, they immediately appealed the decision in the Michigan Court of Appeals. And they claim, which is important for this appeal, um, they claim that this case should have been dismissed before there was even a trial. They're saying that this show, there was absolutely no legal obligation for this show to have anticipated this this act of murder. There's no way they can be held culpable or held liable for that because that is outside of There's the no bounds of reality. There is no precedence. They yeah. had no awareness. Like th- that's not something that would have even crossed their minds. So they should not be. They should not go to court to prove otherwise. 
because it's just, it's it's a non-starter. There were certainly no laws in place that said right. they had to do anything different than how they did it. Yeah. They couldn't say, here's the law that was broken. It, it's a pretty tricky case. And for that reason, after three years, the verdict is then reversed and the court finds that the murder of Scott was something that Jenny Jones and her producers, they couldn't have predicted that it would happen. And the judge rules two to one that the show's sensationalism and surprise tactics not great, very ill-advised, but they, quote, had no duty to anticipate and prevent the act of murder. Because like I said earlier, you just don't walk around thinking that if somebody gets embarrassed, the next step is murder. But the the really, the horrible thing about this is that even if you, it doesn't matter where you land on thinking that they should have been held accountable or not, you still can't help but feel the horrible sting that is Scott's family now receiving nothing. They get no financial compensation when this gets overturned. I was worried when I read this that they had gotten the payout and they had spent it or, you know, I was I was worried about that, but I don't think that's how that happens. Right. Um, meanwhile, Jenny Jones, it's on the air until 2003. And in 2017, Jonathan Schmitz, who was 47 at the time, he is released from prison. He gets out of jail early with credit for good behavior. He served a total of 22 years. I do want to talk about the ethics of this case because I do yeah. I do think it's really fascinating. And what I think has been noted about this case is whether or not something is morally wrong or ethically wrong, the question is, should it be illegal, right? And I think that's the big difference in this case. While Jenny Jones is legally not responsible for this, they are not culpable um, and they are are under no obligation for any compensation towards the family. I think after hearing this case, I think we can all have this moment that feels really sticky and it feels exploitative and it feels... Because what they did, it felt gross. And when you watch it, you feel gross and you Mm -hmm. don't like that this is happening, uh, it it doesn't feel right. But then at the same time, I think a lot of people would say that about listening to a true crime podcast. Totally. You know? Totally. It's it's a little, it's sticky and it's free speech and it's a little, don't yuck someone's yum and to each their own. And people loved watching these shows and they were very successful. Is it worth someone's life? Of course not. Of course not. Um, But... I tend to agree in the sense that would they ever have thought it would end in a murder? No. I can't imagine you would anticipate that. But but I do think it starts to feel, we've been talking, it starts to feel satanic panic to me, Mm. meaning that there's a, a, it reminds me of blaming music or video games for somebody's Mm. actions. And I know that's different because they didn't watch the Jenny Jones show, yeah, and then or, this happened. They were on yeah, they it. they were on so it. <laughs> that is different, but it still does feel like, I don't know where you could safely put that line. If you wanted to make a legal line, I don't know where it, it would belong. Well, yeah, because I think the fear and the reason why the appellate court in Michigan said, hey, this shouldn't have been brought to trial was I think in their minds it infringed on freedom of press and freedom of speech in some ways right. where it's like, where do you draw the line? If if that's this just it, is I don't illegal, think yeah. anyone should I be in think, charge of choosing yeah. where it goes. It's da- that's I, a dangerous thing. 
But to me, this will never be a case about media as much as it is a case about homophobia. Yeah, yeah. Scott Amador is missed by his family, and he was loved by his family. And the way he was killed is horrific and unfair. Listen, let us know. Obviously, we have a lot of opinions on this. Please feel free to let us know what you thought about this case and everything involved. Um, Yeah, you can use... uh, Hashtag crime of a lifetime. Yeah, if you want to weigh in, if you want, if you have a thought about uh, John or Scott or anything else you want to let us know about, please use hashtag crime of a lifetime and tell us what you think on social media. Also, if you have any um, advice for Quinn, who is dealing with like uh, an infirmary ward at her house and conjunctivitis, tummy aches, right in. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. Court TV video of the civil trial between the Jenny Jones Show and Scott Amador's family. An article from the New York Times entitled Fatal Shooting Follows Surprise on TV Talk Show. And the book, American Honor Killings, Desire and Rage Among Men, by David McConnell. If you'd like to learn more about this case, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Kath is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Network, LLC. All rights reserved.